Ms. Day, I, ha I have to, to pick up on a couple things uh, Don, here before I get to. And, and is that Jeff? Can, can you introduce yourself, Jeff, and give us a little report? Hi there, Absolutely. Sorry about uh, my tardiness here. We, uh, we did have a kind of a raucous caucus meeting uh, of sorts today, but uh, Brian is unable to, to attend tonight. We are preparing for the big launch of the campaign tomorrow. And I just thought I'd bring some thoughts uh, and maybe some observations from sort of an assistance role and a frontline organizer's role in this sort of healthcare fight. You see, I have a stack of papers in front of me here. This is the last two weeks of healthcare letters. We've just been inundated. I mean, it's 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 really quite shocking, and uh, to see the kind of the, the kind of response around this issue is really something. Uh, anyway, I, I do work as Brian's assistant in the uh, constituency of Edmonton Highlands Norwood, uh, probably the poorest riding in in the province uh, in terms of socioeconomic socioeconomics. Uh, and I, I just wanted to sort of bring a, a perspective of um, maybe not so much on the academic end, but sort of the the, the struggles we face in terms of building any kind of uh, movement, a, a civil society movement, when really there's there's almost no infrastructure there at all, right? And uh, it's very, very grateful to see the people from uh, QP here because uh, QP is a big part of what, what makes, what little activist movement we still have here in Alberta still there, and I think QP Alberta is, is definitely one of our one of our better unions in that sense. Um, so I'm uh, one of those young people who is involved in politics, 24 years old, from the Red Deer Activist School. I, I know Andy Davies is in there somewhere, and. Uh, Hello to you all, and hope to enjoy a, a lively discussion. Great. Uh, just, just before we get to Peggy, I, there's, there's two things that have to be addressed immediately. And this is slightly important, but in terms of the public perspective and how to enter into this dialogue is based on information that in some cases un, is unfettered with baggage or uh, depending on polarized points of view. What I wanted, and don't take this wrong, please, Ms. Day. Don't, do not take this wrong. <laughs> Okay, it is not necessary for you to buy bottled water. There's nothing wrong with the water supply in this province. And the fact that you choose, through advertising or call it what you will, to purchase bottled water is interesting. Now, that, that's point number one. Point, point number two Who is... says she does? Well, no, she, she brought it up. <laughs> I'll respond. No, no, but the argument is, if, if you're using this as part of the argument, beware of this argument. The second point I wanted to get to, when you use metrics or numbers or measurements, 10% based on what baseline? Like whose metrics? Uh, I get numbers tossed at me all the time. I can take any number and make it play out any way I want if I don't know what the baseline is. So would you please enlighten me in this regard? Okay, first of all, the privatization of water thing. Unfortunately, we have private companies right now trying to sway the municipal councils across Alberta, as well as BC, such as EPCAR, to get into that little bit of a cut. So when I talk about privatization water, um, it's, it's no secret that we have actually some hardcore companies coming. And this is a global issue. This is just not a Canadian or a provincial issue. We have some globalization happening here where private for-profit companies are trying to um, come in and, and, and control our water. And again, I go back to the question, okay, so if we have all these competitive private companies coming in to want to sway our city council people in order to go the private system, what are the consequences of that? What is the price and what is the legislation and regulations? Now, when we go to city council to um, discuss regulations of these of these things and things like that, it's, it's awful. <laughs> 
You know, you, you have the corporate people coming in there and obviously saying, well, you know, obviously they're going to have a say as well. And it's just it's scary because I would like to know, you know, is the public sway and once, and it's especially with NAFTA, I would have to say this right off the bat. Once you privatize anything and you have private companies taking a hold of that, it's non-reversible with NAFTA. That is probably one of my biggest fears. So even in healthcare, like we're speaking now, okay, they want to try this third way and bring in these insurance companies and let's just try this out. Unfortunately, because of NAFTA, we can't reverse that if we go oops. So, you know, our Canadian postal system is one of the examples, you know. We, we, we've contracted some out, privatized. Now our Canadian postal system is, uh, is under attack. Highway 407 in Ontario, privatization of our highways. I mean, you know, our, our federal government has lost millions, if not billions of dollars trying to fight this, this toll bridge situation in Ontario. So, you know, that is probably one of my biggest fears is because of NAFTA, you know, if you want to try the privatization way, you want to regulate legislation, private companies, and think if it will work, hey, you know, yeah, competitive attitude, whatever. However, because of NAFTA, if we can't reverse that now and say, whoops, we screwed up, let's go back to the public system, I'm, I'm afraid that that won't be possible, and we're going to have the Americas, if not globalization, threatening us, our federal government, with lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit. Should our taxpayers go to lawsuits, or should our taxpayers' money, you know, belong to a system that we should have already had and regulated and taken care of? Pay the workers of Canada to work these public systems. So I, I had to answer you that on that one. And the second one, as with the stats thing, Okay. Can, can we give uh, Peggy a chance to Oh, get in? sir, Peggy, yes. My sister, you go. <laughs> Just before you do that, Peggy, and I'm sorry, I have to do this, okay? Because <laughs> I haven't been asked. No, I'm sorry. I have to. You, you can't let certain things dangle, especially in a classroom where other people will walk away and consider this as information. Now, the problem is, and I, I hope that doesn't sound too insulting. It's not no. meant to be, okay? No. We're at no. a distance here. But I want to point out a couple of key things, all right? Mm -hmm. Now, these evil corporations whoop, 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 <laughs> invited, have been invited to make presentations. And I want to go back to Ontario because I lived there for a spell and I was in Toronto where transportation is a very serious business. The 407, the government of Ontario invited people to make bids. Now, if we go back to the United States of America, there was a guy named Eisenhower. You know him, the president? After the Second World War, there were only three highways uniting, crisscrossing the United States like Zorro would make a slash. One was the Dixie Highway, which went north to south. Perhaps Gordon Campbell will remember that. There was the Lincoln Highway that went east-west. It skirts along the top uh, on Montana. If you skirt around the border, you'll see the old highway, too. And then there was something called Route 66, which mm -hmm. did an arc all the way down and connected the other parts of the Z. After the Second World War, Eisenhower and a number of other presidents, but Truman in particular, decided that there would be something that they learned from the Germans, and that was the Autobahn system. It was a four-lane highway, and they designed the interstate system. 
Now, the interstate system could not be built completely by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. So they invited private contractors to build the engine of commerce in the United States. What is wrong with counseling and working with private industry to build an absolute need in this province as we continuously have more people coming here than we have services to provide for them? What's wrong with working with industry? How about letting me speak? Yeah. <laughs> I've been very patient. <laughs> Go ahead, Peggy. Hi, Peggy. Michelle, how about I, how about I weigh in here and then maybe you can. Um, first of all, I think we have to, we have to first try to identify what it is that this, that this discussion is all about. Because Klein is not trying to implement an American system. What he is trying to implement, we need to identify. And Michelle has raised some really important points on this, which I think, Don, those are the things we need to go into. Her discussion of the senior care and the fact that the most, more and more care doesn't even take place within the acute care system now, but home care, extended care, um, assisted living, and all of these things, all of which are being privatized, and none of which have any public scrutiny because they're taking place in people's homes. Can you identify what's going on in home care? Do you know? Are you aware? You know? Well, so I, just, I, just, I think okay. if, you, if you're actually dangling it out and saying is that, are, is anyone aware what's going on with senior and elder care? Is because we've never had so many seniors before. No, no, but the point is that there's a, we need to identify what this discussion is about. Okay, what is it that Klein wants to do? Well, we did See, do that. We did that before you came, and we asked the question, no, what yeah, do we need? We okay, but, but I would like, if you just give me a couple of minutes, please, mm -hmm. I would like to, to draw that out, okay? Because when we're looking at what are the different competing interests of monopolies here, okay? Kretchen once said to, to the, when he was giving a speech to the steel companies, he said, our public health care in Canada is the equivalent of giving you car manufacturers free steel. So mm -hmm. it's a very important benefit, competitive advantage to Canadian monopolies to have public health care. Mm -hmm. But what kind of public health care are they prepared to give? So I think this is one of the most important things we need to draw out. Because when Michelle and I and, and Gordon and others, most people in Canada talk about public health care. We're talking about the fact that we believe that people have a right to health care because they're human beings, not because they have wealth. And that the society is duty-bound to provide that, and it's duty-bound to provide it at the level that the society is capable of providing it. Okay, mm -hmm. so we're, we're talking about a right. When monopolies talk about a, a public health care, they have a much more limited version. And if you go and look at what the federal government said in its submission in the Chiuli case, which was supposed to be the defense of public health care, it made the argument that public, yes, but rationed, okay? And rationed because, according to them, the demand for health care is limitless. So they try to present this notion that, you know, there's all these people lined up to have their hip replaced who don't need a hip replacement, that there's this limitless demand for health care. So that's the argument that is then used to say that we want a system that has, that's public but rationed, 
that has wait lists and wait lists are going to be part of it. And then we have another system that you can jump into if you have the means. Okay? And the argument, I think, that the government is trying to sell is that that second system is not going to destroy the public system, is not going to, to really negatively impact the public system. So we have to situate what that argument is all about. So one of the important things we have to discuss here is what will be the impact of that on the public system. So, I mean, we... I, I can go on into that question right now. I also wanted to raise one other thing. Michelle raised a very, very important point about NAFTA. And, and that point is really important because NAFTA, healthcare is protected under NAFTA. But once you bring in That's true. the um, private sector, mm -hmm. once that private sector develops, that protection under NAFTA, NAFTA no longer exists. So the point that Michelle is making on this is that this, once you go down this road, we're not talking about a bunch of doctors running uh, a small clinic in Calgary or Gimbal Eye Center or whatever, because by my calculation, there's actually about five doctors in Alberta who are demanding this. And, I mean, we can even, and there's also we the, can gov name there's the government yeah. in Quebec right. in particular that's right. already pushed but, this envelope. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about private health care, which may or may not be subsidized publicly, right, because it may be privately delivered health care, paid for by the government, and, you know, that, that may be one aspect of it, which has all of those, those things which M Michelle also raised, and the studies, if you want to look into them, are Dr. Devereaux at McMaster University. They're very authoritative, and, and there's a, all the proof in the world that public health care um, is better than private health care. But we, we're talking about that, but we're also talking about this second tier. Now, next thing is that Klein is very, very clear that he wants to reduce the expenditures on health care down to inflation which means he's not going to take care of aging population and he's not going to take care of growing population. He wants to keep that health care expenditure lower than growing population or the demographics of an aging population. So you're going to have the existing queue split into two. That's what's going to happen. And one part of that queue is going to be for those people who can pay. And the other part of the queue is going to be for those people who can't pay. But the the, the second queue, the new, the, the new split off of the queue, is not going to be based on how long you've been waiting or how acute your need is. It's going to be based on your ability to pay. So the queue of people waiting in the public system is going to have people waiting longer, and it's going to have people with more acute problems in it. So that's the first thing that's going to happen. The second thing that's going to happen is that you're going to have a huge bleed of people from the public system. And I don't think it's necessarily, I appreciate what Gordon said about greed, but I don't think it's even, we don't even need to accuse the doctors here of greed because you've got huge burnout in the healthcare system of every kind of provider who's been trying to keep the system going in the midst of, you know, inhuman and criminal cuts by, by the Klein government over the years. And they're burnt out. 
So you offer a doctor the option of going into the private system, doing elective surgery Monday to Friday, 8 to 4. A lot of them are going to go for it. They're going to leave the rest of the people, you know, half as many people to look after emergencies, to look after the people who run into complications in the private system and end up in emergency, who are doing on call, who are doing all this stuff. You're going to have half the people trying to look after those acute illnesses. And it's going to break the system down. So that drain of people from the public health care system will create a crisis that the public health care system keeps on deteriorating. So we're looking at a situation where the advent of that private health care is going to end up smashing the public system. And I think that that is a very, very important thing that people have to appreciate. Because what's being presented here is that if I have the means, if I have the money, I should have the right, okay? So we're making two arguments against that. The first is that we're saying that rights belong to everybody by, by virtue of the fact that they're human beings. And we don't accept that society should be organized on the basis that rights be belong to people on basis of wealth. But second of all, that the right of those few is going to hugely impact the right of the many. Can I just do a slight interrupt, yeah. right? First off, in the issue of NAFTA, I'm sorry, it's moot. The province of Quebec has put us into a position with a recent ruling uh, that takes away even this discussion's veracity, let alone in that court. I mean, they don't care. And, and so, in other words, the NAFTA question is, a, is an open question mark at this point. It, we're not even playing in this game yet. The government of Quebec and, and a recent ruling has put that into play with regards to NAFTA. So we don't have to go there. The second thing that comes up is that we've not taken to an, into account, and I'm not saying this because I agree with this. I'm saying this is because this has come up from time to time in the United States of America, is if we treat our system that it's in stasis, that it's in complete, uh, has no capacity whatsoever to change, evolve, or absorb other ideas. And I agree with everything that you said, everything. And I think we should run right to the ramparts right now, scream and yell and carry on and throw those stones at the legislature if necessary. I agree. But if we find that any living organism or for that matter an institution or a government is not in stasis, although one would tend to believe that the Progressive <laughs> Conservative Party would like to keep it that way, that we have to start to think about other aspects of the American system. And I do have a question for Mr. Campbell because I want him to point this out as well, that we haven't heard from the doctors yet. And I'll get to that in just a minute. And I want you to reflect, Mr. Campbell, in, in, in the bit of this rant I'm about to go through about what happened to doctors' opinions after healthcare systems took play into Saskatchewan. Just ruminate on this for a moment, please. After about 10 years, when doctors realized that they didn't have to be paid in chickens anymore, uh, which was real. That actually did happen, You're chickens back. and eggs in Saskatchewan. You just hang on to that for a moment because I have to put this to Peggy Morton right now because I appreciate her counsel and I think she has something genuine to say to us in the sense of the, the, the broad sweep of time here in the province. And here's the question. In the United States of America, yes, it's true. It, it is a vicious, mean-spirited system if you don't have any money. But they have one aspect that I wish we would import here sooner than later. They have lots of philanthropy, tons of philanthropy. There are people I've talked to in the United States, and I'm not going to say it's rare either. Okay, when you watch PBS, for instance, you see the Catherine D. M. MacArthur Foundation and, and Ray Kroc's wife giving PBS or National Public Radio $240 million, that's with an M, 
just because they feel some americans feel that the whole idea is to make as much money as you can and then give it away and that's why you have all these private philanthropies you have these hospitals and you have all these kinds so it's certainly true that if we consider our system is in stasis then we're in trouble with this belief system some of which i share but is it also you have you have 40 43 million people not covered at all though yeah well actually uh gross situation it's the only it's the only so-called industrial country in the world without health care i mean they spend all money on militarism they they pay comparable taxes and instead of those taxes going to pay for health care which most countries that's taken for granted it goes it goes to pay for military adventures and you know incredible technology welcome shannon phillips hi shannon and is that melanie thomas hi melanie hello melanie davy's wife I have one more thing I want to say in response to Don's comment about stasis. Okay, then we're and then we're going to go to James Moore, yeah. who's been watching the chat. There's a see a little drama where there's a, a doctor in Vancouver and she's trying to get her sister in Beijing on the chat line. So there's quite a bit going on. Uh, James has been doing some kind of investigative journalism with uh, respect to what's behind, who's giving the Alberta government its advice. Who, uh, who, right. who, is, who are the companies that are, have been hiding? So you're going to tell us about Aon and so on. I, I just wanted to make this one point, which is, if there's anything I'm sick to death of, it's talking about the need for innovation. Because there is nothing more tired and old and non-innovative <laughs> about, about taking a public system and making it profit-driven. That there, there cannot be anything less innovative about that, right? Because all you're doing is saying that the motive for everything you do now should be profits, and, and that's innovative. So if we want to be innovative, if we want to talk about that, then let's start talking, for example, about the fact, like, I just want to give this one example. Does anybody know why hips and, and, and knees, because I do, why those lists are longer than any other list? Mm -hmm. Do you know why? It's because... A hip prosthesis costs, you know, three to eight thousand dollars, and so for years and years and years, the hospitals rationed the number they did, and those lists got longer and longer. So it was the private profit motive that meant that those lists got longer and longer. So if we want to be innovative, why don't we establish a public company as part of our healthcare system that makes hip and knee prostheses? We can probably make them for a couple hundred bucks. You know, it's just a little piece of of stainless steel and titanium, you know, it's no big <laughs> deal. Um, so, you know, look across the way at the University of Alberta. One of the things that, that nobody's talking about, about the third way, is that they want to put money into bringing uh, drugs and, and, and medical equipment and, and, and technology to the market so the taxpayer and the, and the collective wisdom and, and knowledge of the people, which they call intellectual property and we call social property, um, that is going to give rise to all these new things and then they're going to be handed over to private enterprise for profit. So, I mean, we could fund the whole system by eliminating that and developing them publicly. Uh, somebody told me that, th that on the basis of, of one um, recent development at the University of Alberta, they could have given free tuition to everybody, every student there till, 
you know, the next 20 years. Um, so let's talk about real innovation and, and let's, you know, get over this idea that the most tired, outmoded, archaic, you know, system in the world is, is how we're going to innovate. Well, I'll let James go first. James got some stuff to say, I think. Yeah. You want to use the document camera or can... I'm not mic. Okay. Just read it out loud, James. Okay, yeah, this, yeah. okay I'm going to read this out. I can, I can show it on the document camera later. But um, first of all, uh, get some information here from the Alberta government. I've got the request proposals uh, for systems. To, first of all, uh, this is the proposal that was won by Aon Corporation. And the project objectives... Um, to explore alternate financing models for healthcare services and to create conceptual models for health services insurance and provide economic and actuarial analysis. And later on in the document, it says, the economic modeling and analysis shall describe and analyze the implications for startup investment by the government of Alberta to defray the front-end costs of shifting all or part of the health services described in the schemes from a publicly funded approach to an insurance-based funding approach. That's the request for proposals which Aon Corporation won. And Aon Corporation is the United States' second largest insurance broker who, on March 4, 2005, paid $190 million to policyholders to settle a corruption case brought by the Attorney Generals of New York, Connecticut, and Illinois. So those are the guys, second largest insurance broker in the United States who paid $190 million uh, to a corruption case, who, who won the request for proposals from the Alberta government. And, and in the mandate, they're also, uh, you know, talking about the, the, the money that the government of Alberta plans to pay to, to start this all up because, uh, you know, the, it, it points that the scheme is uh, really uh, all about money, which Gordon and others have pointed out. And as well, the request for proposals, uh, second request for proposals, 05243 from the Alberta government, is asking for uh, project objectives that they want some marketing spin doctor company to sell the project uh, as researched and delineated by Aon to the people of Alberta. And they want somebody who's... Uh, who has completed market research to provide evidentiary support for the communication strategy and uh, to de develop the communication strategy to provide Albertans with additional information on the details of the third wave. As well, in the project background, 2.1.2, it says no equivocation at all, no bullshit about public consultation. It says very straightforward. Alberta is moving ahead with the third way of health care delivery as announced by Premier Ralph Klein on July 20, 2005. So, so there's no equivocation there. And as far as public consultation goes, Alberta government had an opportunity in the election to public consult by announcing its plans to the people and letting them vote on those plans. They chose not to. They chose to say that it was too complex to discuss in an election. And now we have Iris Evans in Lethbridge yesterday. Nobody could even find her. This is public consultation. Then she shows Why up on the first, the first page of the Herald, all her photos, saying she's gaining, uh, you know, 
sneaking around the back rooms trying to find somebody who will listen to her for a few minutes so she can pretend she's consulted the public. This isn't public consultation. This is the big move for privatization, given the surplus element. And the second thing is, you know, this lie about the 25 years the entire Alberta budget will be spent on health care. I mean, this is insanity. This is impossible. This is projecting some imaginary speculation, denying any reality in the situation. And you can only imagine that the way they're going to be able to do that is by subsidizing the oil companies and refusing to tax them at all, which is the direction they're heading. They just dropped the corporate tax rate to 10% from 11.5, gift of $300 million. The difference between royalty rates between Norway and Alberta is about $10 a barrel. At $1.5 billion a day, that's $15 million a day, which is about $5 billion a year. So there's $5.5 billion right there on the funding side that they've managed to hand over to the private system. And they're looking, well, gee, you know, there's another $10 billion in health care public dollars that we might be able to hand over as well. So that's that from the Alberta government side. You know, when you start to put that. Why would they do that? Why would they do this with health care? Is that the question? Yeah. Well, in all of these documents, you see very clearly that they're busy with choice. Yeah, they're talking about choice all the time. Albertans deserve choice. And I think, you know, what they're saying there essentially is what's the point of capitalism if you can't spend your money? What's the point of living in a capitalist society? And actually, Ralph Klein said it very well here. I have a quote from Ralph Klein. He was meeting Niagara on the lake in 2004, which kind of gives you exactly the answer to your question. Why would they do it? This is Ralph himself speaking. You can go pit money away at the casino down here. You can buy a new car. You can buy a new microphone. If you want, you can buy a new house. You can buy clothes for your wife. You can buy clothes for yourself. You can do anything in the world. The only thing you can't do in this country is spend money on your own health care, and I think it's wrong. So that's why they're doing it. So in other words, if I understand you properly, it's akin to the old days when you had to line up at the liquor store, and if it shut down at 9, that's tough. So are you saying that we're talking the same thing, liquor is like health? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that there's been a struggle, a long struggle in this country. Gordon Campbell talked about what was happening in 1962. If the people democratically decide that they want to have some form of a sharing society, they've had to fight all the way for that. They got to the point that they recognized collectively that medical care was important enough that we were going to share the burden and the benefit of it. And that's what that's about. And the other side of what that's about is, first of all, this is a horrible example for the people south of us because they don't like any kind of example of something that works. Their people can look over the border, those 40 million without any health care at all, and they can say, gee, in Canada, I might have a chance to see a doctor or get some medical attention without having to sell my house. And that's not very pleasant for the ruling elite in the United States. So they would prefer that it didn't exist. 
And, and th then when you see people like the Aeon Corporation coming in here to actually design the, the system, I mean, what a wonderful world. And now Mr. Harper's gone down to, to chat with, with Mr. Bush tomorrow and about, you know, maybe they'll talk about the progression, progression of the scheme in Alberta. I think we should have some of our colleagues. Thank you. I'm going to over, over. I'm going to let uh, Michelle in, but, but just before I do, uh, I, I want to reflect on this a little bit. I know when we were working on Pro Kyoto, uh, Tucker Gomberg and I, um, we came to see that there was a, a, a big publications company called Burson Marsteller. That you know, we had a picture of Ralph has a certain view of this good old Ralph, six pack Ralph. You know, you could have a beer with Ralph. But you start to get bigger context and you, you realize that, uh, you know, he's, he's an effective communicator for large corporate work. I think, Don, on the time that you were taken off the air, you were saying uh, a great deal today about Enron, a certain little company called Enron, and the fact that uh, some of the uh, innovation, uh, so-called innovation, the laboratory for change, in deregulated energy was happening in Alberta. Yeah. And to me, that's a very big story. Enron is a big global story, and the fact that experiments were taking place in energy de deregulation in Alberta, I don't think that ever really got out. It's not very public. Uh, you know, now we hear that there's something called AON, a uh, private insurance company who's already, you know, quarterbacking this situation. It's not good old Ralph trying to, you know, Try a few little, uh, little innovations. It's, it's, you know, what's the context? What's the framework for this? I know, Michelle, you're, you're, you're dying to say a few words here. I, ha I have to say a couple words on a, a couple things. Um, for, first of all, when, <laughs> yay, hi. Um, first of all, when Ralph Klein came into power, he surrounded himself with the media. And unfortunately, that wasn't able to, uh, unfortunately, educate society on what exactly was going on. But he was a very intelligent man to do so. However, when I when I look at healthcare, and with Ralph Klein said, you can buy, you can choose to buy a TV, a T-shirt, a skirt, or whatever. So let's look at what is a commodity. Is healthcare this commodity that you know should be manipulated versus a TV, a T-shirt, and stuff like that that could be produced? And unfortunately, I say you need a healthy community, no matter on what uh, uh, Lethbridge, provincial, or or Canada-wide. You need a healthy community to enable the economy to actually work. You need the workers to make it work. Health workers. So um, unfortunately, there's there's a problem in that, and I just have to say too, like, oh, I could say so much. Um, with, I had so many thoughts going through my Oh, with this Aon contract. So, Don, you were asking, well, what is making them decide this or, or whatever? And I'm going to have to say there's no interest like self-interest. So let's look at this Aon contract. I mean, who is actually involved? I hear that Dinnings, Jim Dinnings, who's one of the leaders running the Conservative Party, actually is a part of Great West Life. And as James pointed out, um, there, there's these consulting groups that are attached to Aon, and he has, I hear, interest within that group. So um, then we look at Senator Michael Kirby, who sits, who sits there, and, and let's look at senior care. He actually sits on the board of Extended Care, a private 
private for-profit facility that is in the public system with, with senior care. He went across the country to promote the uh, even further private privatization of, uh, oh, here we go. Jim did, uh, Dinnings is the chair of the Western Financial Group. Western Financial owns Western Life Insurance, which I've said, who turns wholly owns a brand new company, a private health care insurance company called Acura Health. So, you know, Acura? Acura Health? So they're going to be promoting this, 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 this insurance, and I'm sure he'll get a cut of that. Senator Michael Kirby sits on the Board of Governors for Extended Care, who promotes privatization of senior health care. So if we're going to look at who is bringing this in, what is their motive? And again, I go back, there's no interest like self-interest. When you have these people that we elect in power, well, what's behind that? What are they tied to? And maybe, you know, maybe you're right, that's our fault to not know, but how are we to know? And uh, Ralph Klein was definitely smart, like surrounding himself with media people. But because of this, you know, information technology that we're becoming more aware, hopefully we can get behind some of these self-interested people and promote what's actually really right with, with, with public health care. Could Mr. Campbell and uh, comment just before we hear from uh, these folks behind us here who should we get into the conversation. Mr. Campbell, could you please reflect briefly, just because I think it would be important for the, the class and for those of us here in Edmonton and in Pincher Creek uh, to hear uh, from someone such as yourself who was there on the front line that the doctors who initially uh, opposed the implementation of health care uh, the medic public health care system as we understand it in Saskatchewan, later grew to love it, as one doctor told me, is I didn't have to worry about collecting on the chickens anymore, he said. Mm -hmm. Would you please illuminate the change in doctors' attitudes as it became clear to them that the public system as it was implemented at the time seemed to work in their interest in the long run? Yeah, yeah. Uh, a little bit of history. Re remember the Depression? You, you of, of young years, uh, read about this in the book. Uh, for some of us of ripe years, uh, we had a hard time putting margarine on the table, let alone butter. It was not always clear that we were going to have enough food to eat. They didn't have margarine in those days. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have margarine, I guess. Uh, but it wasn't always clear that we were going to have enough food to eat uh, at the end of the day. We knew that there was something in the garden uh, that uh, you could keep over the winter, root crops and things that would do. It was in that context that Saskatchewan uh, elected uh, a government that said, uh, uh, my God, we've got to do better than this. And they elected a cloth that they thought they could trust. I might tell you also that uh, in Alberta, I went in Medicine Hat with my mother holding my hand to a meeting by uh, which the speaker Bible, Bill Eberhardt, the founder and originator of uh, partly of, of social credit, in the arena of Medicine Hat. Huge game. And my mother was no right-winged ideologue at all, but thought that she ought to go to the political meetings and I ought to go with her. <clears throat> Meeting began with our help in ages past. Imagine a political meeting beginning with a hymn tune of that fervor. 
And my mother, uh, the mother of four, of whom I'm the youngest boy, said, any man, any politician that will, in our agony and our need, uh, begin a political meeting with this kind of a song, I'll vote for that man. And something of the same, I think, was in, in uh, the thoughts of the Saskatchewan people. Life was rough and tough. And it was tough for the doctors, too, uh, in, in, that, in, in that community. And as Don Hill has pointed out, the doctors were frequently rewarded with a half carcass when, when, uh, or a quarter of a carcass or something uh, for, for services, services rendered. It was, a, it was a tough business, but the money was coming in uh, from the American Medical Association. Uh, the opportunities were made visible to them that we can live, the doctors and the society, in a, in a different kind of way. And so it was that the, that the, the, the doctors uh, together decided that they didn't want to have the responsibility of billing and, and charging, and that that could be done by somebody else and we provide the services. And that's how it came about. That's how it is now. I think that the doctors are, are by and large, very happy with the current medical system of, of, of public health. There are, of course, some who want more, much wants more, and there are some who want to have a, a, a specialized practice here and there throughout, throughout. But my appreciation, Don, is that the doctors uh, are, are by and large in support of the public care system with amendments that they would like to make. I want to make another comment. Yes, please do. Yes. Mr. Mr. Klein, uh, has, is, is, a, is a magician as a communicator. He is supremely effective. Uh, and uh, when, his, when he uh, makes his statements about uh, um, the, 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 the system needs to be changed, he is enormously effective. And uh, I'm afraid that uh, um, most people now in this province are are swayed by their image of Mr. Klein as a benefactor for us all and uh, not dealing with the hardcore issues of, 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 of Medicare. He has managed to persuade the people in some kind of ideology that covers everything. The privatization is, by definition, better. Uh, uh, he forgot that he who owns the things that men must have owns the men that must have them, women too. And uh, we are overcome by his magic, magic words. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed and sorry that we are unable to uh, deal with the power and the money that we're dealing with now. You knew Mr. Douglas, Mr. Campbell. You knew him. You were with him and you watched him. If Mr. Douglas were alive today, was alive today, what would he do? Uh, I think he would go up and down uh, the, 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 the streets as he, as he did in the past by asking ourselves to look at our communities, the quality that we have, uh, the role of the individual as against the group uh, in, the, in, the, in the community. He would ask us to reflect on the values that we uh, live by now and uh, are we allowing the
predators outside of Alberta, outside of Canada, elsewhere in the world to seize upon the resources that belong to the people that ought to be equitably shared amongst the people to take them from us? I think it would be a kind of questions. Uh, I think that the that the, the churches, by and large, would be behind, would be behind them. That's right. Behind the corporate wealth, as they are in the right-wing Republican United States. So, how would he get? And this is my final question to you, sir. How would he get that message out today with a journalism that's non-existent in this province? Oh, a powerful, powerful, important point. Because the the journalism by the corporate that, uh, that that I've been speaking about. I don't know. Uh, I think Tommy Douglas was a, a powerfully effective communicator, but uh, he had small groups that, uh, like this that were organized province, where people sat down together in a community to, to take note, of, to share the information, to seek for, 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 from, from each other. And I don't think we... He had to rely on television and radio to the extent that we now do, because these things that we're using right now are owned by somebody, not us, not us. Look at Fox News. No, they are owned by us. This is a public <laughs> institution. They are owned by us. <laughs> our classrooms. This is our curriculum. This is our university. And it hasn't been privatized yet. 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 Uh, Ron was asking about the, 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 the media that yes. access to, and the public, I agree, have access to this. I hope more of them get access to it in the, in the future, but at the moment, uh, uh, we are uh, badly served by, by the news agencies of the, of the world. I, I just want to answer something about the doctor of a situation of 1962 versus now. I would like to take a look at what type of doctors in 1962 were protesting against this public system. What type of doctors do we have here now? I think mm -hmm. it was the solidarity fact that the doctors, yes, in 1962 walked out, you know, they, they didn't support it, and it, it was a tragedy. But now we have, I guess, I would separate them into two. We have the specialists, and we have the general practitioners. So the uh, American Medical Association is not siding on both sides right now because they are literally torn. We have the general practitioners that know the value. And you know what? As society progresses, diseases, chronic illness, diagnosis is becoming more and complex. More. You go see a general practitioner public system. Who do they refer you to? A specialist that wants the privatized system. In a unique situation, too, we have if you go to a private specialist who does these oper operations on you and stuff like that, and something happens, whether it's infections, whether it's this or that, who do they refer you back to? The public system into ER and stuff like that to get things treated. So we have a unique div diversity here. We have the specialists who, um, you know, come out and... and whether it's greed, whether it's they deserve it, I'm not going to debate that right now, but they're sitting there wanting the American system. Why? Because, well, they're specialists. You are referred to them because your general practitioner, like um, Peggy said, 
they're so overburdened right now. General practice, we're a thousand doctors short here in Alberta, I guess is, is what they're saying. So when you get overburdened by the public system and you have something specifically wrong on you and so then you're referred to a specialist, but then that specialist, well, he's in the private system. I had a girl um, come to me almost in tears. She was this elder lady and I, I don't want to be gross or anything, but she had a prolapse in her, in her uterus. So she was referred to a specialist, not a gynecologist, but someone specifically for that. Uh, she went to his clinic, referred to a public doctor, went there privately. Um, so uh, she walked into his waiting room, referred, didn't think anything of it, went in, got a procedure done where they, they did this. The nurse walked in. As soon as the doctor walked out, said that will be $60 insertion. Well, I, I wasn't aware of that. That I was referred to a public, my family public doctor, to a specialist, you know, and she was hit up with a $60 charge, unaware, uninformed, not knowing, you know. So we had when we talk about the doctors in 1962, what kind of doctors were were they? General practitioners. They were they were they they used to work for farmings, but they used to come out and deliver your babies. They used to do absolutely everything, and you did trust them. Now, you go to your family doctor who you trust for everything, they can't handle the workload. They cannot know absolutely everything as one human being can. So you're referred, your problem is referred to somebody who is specialized in that area that does, but now it's at a cost. Is that right? You know, that's, Peggy. I'm debating yeah. no. 